There we go. Good morning, everyone. So here we are. John chapter 4. It's a wonderful story of Jesus meeting a woman at the well. And this is a, a, a message that kind of falls in between our Roman series and our whole summer series, which is going to be entitled, um, and I'm going to get it wrong because at the beach I said it was, it was the rebels, the renegades, and the rebellious, or the rascals, or whatever. But they all start with R. So it's actually going to be the rascals, renegades, and radicals of the Bible. And we're going to be looking each week at a different story in the Old and New Testament of different individuals that we consider to be those kind of individuals that really pushed the boundaries and did something great for God. And we're going to learn their story, and we have our teaching team set up, and it's going to be an exciting series here at Norris and also at the beach. But this morning is kind of a standalone message, and yet maybe it's an introduction to a series about radical and renegade rebels and rascals in the Bible, and this one's about Jesus. And here it is in John chapter 4. It's a wonderful story, and if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open, and I'm going to read a portion of this text of John chapter 4, where Jesus meets this woman in Samaria. And so, Jesus is traveling along, and he stops in a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave the son of Joseph in verse 5, if you're following along in John chapter 4. And in verse 6, and Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus says to this woman, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being Jew, would ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan? I'm a Samaritan woman. And parentheses in the New American Standard, which I think is an important parentheses, almost like, by the way, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. What is Jesus doing here? Why is he doing this? How come he's talking to a woman being a Jew and a rabbi? He's breaking all the social barriers, the religious barriers, the cultural barriers. He's way out there, totally out there. And here we find Jesus doing his best work when he's, that, when, he's, when he's that kind of a person. And so we find him here in this Sumerian district talking to a woman at a well, and he answers and says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me, and he would have given you living water. See, Jesus takes it to the next level. It's not just water, it's living water. And he says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw, and the well is deep. How are you going to get this living water you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank from it, he and his sons and cattle? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Absolutely. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to, me, said to, her, said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come here to draw water again. And he says to her, and this is important, go call your husband and come here. The woman says to him, I have no husband. Jesus says, you have answered correctly that you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now are with is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you as a prophet. And then 
she begins to change the subject, if you notice. That Jesus goes after her heart, and she changes the subject, and they want to talk about where to worship. So she draws in this idea of, well, where should we worship? Should we worship here in Samaria, or should we worship in Jerusalem? Jesus says, woman, believe me, there's an hour that's really coming, when really that's not even going to be an issue, because there's an hour that's coming where we will truly worship the right one in spirit and truth. And it's not about where you worship. It's not about any kind of religious law or ceremony. It's about worshiping the right person. And an hour is coming that that will actually happen. And then she's amazed, verse 25. I know that the Messiah is coming, but and they will, she will, this Messiah will declare all these things to us. And then he says, I am that one. You're looking at him. You're looking at the right person. The disciples all of a sudden show up after getting lunch, which I love this story because Jesus sends 12 guys to get lunch for 13. Does anybody notice that? Why does he do that? Because he wants them to all scram. Because he wants a moment with this woman. Because he knows that they would have been offended and that it would have offended their religious background and their culture. And they probably would have prevented him from going into Samaria, drawing, sitting by a well, and meeting a woman, and getting into a discussion with her. So he sends them to lunch, and he's got some time alone. They come back. This woman has already been transformed. And notice what happens. So the woman leaves her water pot after meeting the one who delivered living water to her soul and says to the city where all the men live, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is the Christ, is it not? This is a remarkable story in so many ways. As we approach this text, I think we're first confronted with the fact that Jesus is somewhere that he shouldn't be talking to someone he shouldn't be talking to, which is really going to get him in a lot of trouble if you think about it. According to Jewish law and tradition, rabbinical teaching, cultural norms, and just plain good common sense of that day, he should never have gone to Samaria, let alone allowed himself to be alone with a woman. And yet there's, there we find it. We find the ultimate radical, the ultimate rebellious one, the ultimate renegade, the rascal of the New Testament, stepping over a boundary, stepping into a culture and a community that he should not have been in. And I don't think there will ever be in history more radical individual than Jesus. And I think what Jesus does, and this is really, really important, and I want you to see it. If Jesus had not gone to Samaria, just think if you're a Samaritan. You're hated by the Jews. You're isolated. You have your own place of worship because you're not invited to Jerusalem. You can't come to church. Imagine being that kind of a person and trying to have a relationship with God. And Jesus doesn't come to your hometown. He lives three years. He goes to the cross. And he's never visited anybody in your community. Could you imagine how you might feel? Does God really love us? Does God really care? Does God care a bit about us? And yet what I find with Jesus, he touched every segment of society. 
He touched the religious, the elite, the wealthy, the politically elite. He touched the poor, the lepers. He touched the dying. He even went into the Gentile communities. The people that were outside of Judaism in the first century, which represented anybody religious or non-religious outside of Judaism. And he went to this one group of people, the Samaritans, so that no group of society could ever say, Jesus didn't care for us. And so he wanders in, has this conversation, and it changes this woman's life. And she goes back to her community and says, you will not believe the man I just met. I had been ashamed, guilty of my past, no longer. And that's the story in front of us. It's a story of how Jesus meets a woman and changes her life, and she becomes the next evangelist to Samaria. And what's interesting is all you have to do is read one Samaritan, because they're going to tell all their friends, and the gospel will spread to the Samaritans. So all Jesus had to do was touch one person in each segment of society to reach the world. And that's what he did. Now, there's an interesting article in the Huffington Post. I just have to tell you about this. I thought it was kind of interesting that, that this particular individual, David Lose, who's a, a president of a, a, of a theological seminary, actually believes that this woman doesn't, doesn't have a sordid past. She actually been married five times, but he, she's widowed five times, and the man that she's living with is just based on dependence, not any kind of a inappropriate relational way. And argues that the reason why we preachers teach on this as the woman at the well has the sordid past is because of misogyny and this higher level of moralism that we're trying to push on people. And so he argues against that, yet the text tells us in the middle of the day, here's this woman who comes to the well by herself to a well that is far from her city where there's already water available. So why in the middle of a hot summer or hot day travel alone to get water when water's really close and you're alone. And then she reveals the fact that she's had five husbands and the man that she's living with right now is Jesus realizes she's not your husband, which is not appropriate in this culture and in this day. And so we find that this woman who has a past, his life has changed. And I want to point out three things to you before we hear Anthony's story and his testimony. There's three things that we learn about this passage for us as the church. Here they are. And this is kind of the abridged version. Okay? So if you're taking notes or whatever, I'll just give you a couple thoughts on each one of these. And the first one is, it's all about contextualizing the gospel. And that's a big word, to contextualize. But you know what contextualize means? It means putting a thought or concept or an idea in the modern vernacular. It means finding something within the culture that you live in and identifying with that so that you can draw an analogy. So you find something. And in the passage, what do we find? What, what, what's the, what's the, the analogy that Jesus draws? What is it? It's water. Everybody needs water in that culture. And to have water, to have living water, a water that never ends would be something of value in that culture. You need it. You thirst for it. Not only physically. 
Jesus draws deeper and says, now, if I could give you a water where you'll never run out, John 7, 37, he actually goes deeper in that and says at the end of the Feast of the Booze on the eighth day, they're pulling water into the, temp in the temple to, 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 cere to, to ceremoniously you know, acknowledge God's provision during the desert to bring water to, this pe to these people that have been left, let out of slavery in Egypt and on their way to the promised land. They celebrated by bringing water in. God is our provider. God's our provider. Jesus stands up on the eighth day and says, I have living water. I, my water never ends. He was talking about the Holy Spirit and the changed life that happens, but he used an analogy, and here's the point. You and I are challenged with the idea that we have to find the right vernacular. We have to find the right analogy. We need to find what Don Richardson calls the redemptive analogy for our culture. Don Richardson, by the way, was a missionary. He went to New Guinea, and he lived among the Sa'i people. And what he discovered is these people would betray their, 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 their tribe, their, their, the villages around, individuals in the villages, and they would betray them, show that they're friends, and then steal one of them away and then eat them. They were cannibals, okay? So it's kind of a horrible thing to live in these communities, if you can imagine, that you're being liked by another community member, but only because you're being betrayed, betrayed and then you're going to be actually eaten for dinner. It's horrible. And so he wanted to bring the gospel, so he told the story of Jesus, and they fell in love with Judas. Because Jesus, Judas was the betrayer. He was the hero of the story, not Jesus. And so he had to think of another analogy, and he, they decided among themselves as tribe members and cities and community or communities that they would, they would choose a child from each of the communities and they would trade. So they would give each other a child and it would be called the peace child. And as long as they had that child, there'd be peace with that other community because that child represented that community. And then if something happened, then, oh, then they, were no, they were no longer under the peace. And then Don Richardson realized, there it is. There's the redemptive analogy. Who's the greatest peace child that brings peace, that brings forgiveness, that brings hope? Who's the one who gave his life to bring peace among people and peace in your own heart and soul and they got it jesus and our challenge in this culture is to find that analogy what is the analogy what what do people like what do they think about what do we see in movies today where do people go what do they talk about what do we value most outdoors we live in a community that's beautiful it's rural it's beach we we, we find people connecting and they want to exercise and walk and they want to talk and they, they love good coffee and food and, and, and they like connection. They don't like missing out. And you, we, could, we could find all sorts of analogies of what people really want. And then we could go even deeper into the community, into the urban communities, and ask the question, what would really communicate the gospel? Take away the Christianese. How could we communicate Jesus' love in the inner city? What do people really thrive for? What are they? What are they? What are they? What are they driven for? What do they? What do they desire? They want jobs. They want a community. They want to be loved. They want identity. They want family back. There's all sorts of things that we could draw upon, and I think what Jesus does in this passage is he identifies the redemptive analogy of his culture, and he wins her to Jesus. He wins her over by showing her that he is true living water. The second thing I realized in this passage is 
that it's this go call your husband. Remember I mentioned that passage? Well, when he says go call your husband, she wants to change the subject, doesn't she? I mean, who wants to talk about your past? Who here would wants to stand up and sit and talk about a past that you might be ashamed of or feel guilty of? And this woman's no different. Oh, well, let's talk about where to worship. Do we worship in Samaria? Do we worship in Jerusalem? Let's talk about other things. I don't want to talk about my past. So she quickly changes the subject. And Jesus says, you have correctly said that I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And I think what Jesus does, and my second point is, he looks beyond her background and her past and he looks deep into her soul and he says to her, I already know. I already know your life. I know everything about you. Don't be worried about that. I know. I know your background. And I'm offering you living water. See, Jesus went right through that. It was a way into her heart and into her soul by identifying what was keeping her. What she was looking for was love in all the wrong places. She was looking for wells, living water among men. And Jesus said, I have a greater, deeper, living water for you. And I know, I know your background. You don't have to go any further. And in that moment, this woman probably thought the conversation's over. And yet it was just beginning. Because Jesus says, I know. I know your background. I think one of the greatest challenges for the church today is not only to contextualize the gospel, but it's to see beyond immoral and perfect behavior and invite people at the deepest level to meet Jesus. See, it's going into places like Samaria in our culture, the prison system, places where people have been basically disregarded. It's the impoverished communities. And we all know that the statistics show that in poverty, greater adversity happens because they have greater disadvantage. And they often are not regarded the homeless, the sick, the dying. See, every part of our culture needs the gospel. But those that live in these traumatic places where there's difficulty know about their past and oftentimes feel ashamed. And Jesus is looking at him saying, I know. And you may be here this morning and you're like, Jesus will never, I know. I know you. I know your life. I know everything about you. I already know. Do you want living water? Do you want what I have to offer? See, living water all throughout the Old Testament was God's spiritual transformation. Titus 2, 3, 5 say that we'll be washed. We will be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The act of regeneration is when the work of the Holy Spirit comes into your life and regenerates your heart and gives you a new nature. Gives you, at the deepest level, a new life. In Christ. It's the offer and it's available. But oftentimes we don't even take the time. I was at the library and I was looking up a particular book that I wanted to use for this message and I couldn't find it and I sat down to study and an Indian family came in and and, uh, and I didn't know why they were there but they brought their two, three month old infant in and the baby began to cry and then it needed to be fed and they pulled out all their food supplies and began feeding the baby right in the middle of the library. And so I just 
without getting upset, I just got up to leave and, and find a new location in the library. And the man apologized and said, no, no, it's fine. I can go find another place. And about 30 minutes later, the mother came out and found me and said, we're so sorry. We've come from all the way to the other side of town. We're moving to Seattle. We needed to get our passports. And your library was able to do that. But we had to bring our, our son with us. And so I said, well, where are you from? You know, what are you doing? Why are you moving? And, and so we got into this amazing conversation. And, and, and I really appreciate the fact that she would take the time to come over to me. And I realized in that moment, I had all these judgments. Why are you doing this? This is not a place for the child in the library. And I had all these thoughts and judgments against them without even knowing their story. And I realized the minute you get to know someone, you hear the backstory of their life and you're instantly attracted to their life because you know there's something real, there's something deep about them that's, that's drawing you in. Well, there's so much more that I wanna say about this, but the last thing that I wanna point out to you is in verse 28 and 29, when, when this woman leaves her water pots at the well and runs back to town, and what does she say? Come, you've gotta meet a man. You gotta meet a man that I just met. And I wanna show you, and I wanted you to see in this text, the great humility of this woman. That she was willing to go back to her own community and not feel any more ashamed or guilty of her past. But she wanted to tell these people, not about the men in her life, but the man in her life, Jesus. And our greatest testimony is a testimony about the man in your life, Jesus, who changed your life. And it's all about your, your approach. It's all about your approach. The humility, the kindness. See, here's the point. When Jesus demonstrates and shows you great kindness and compassion and love, I know, come to me. I have living water. You cannot but tell other people with the same level of care and concern. And I think what the world needs is a witness to Jesus that not only is the truth for all people, but it's communicated in a way that demonstrates that it's the truth that actually changes people's hearts and lives. It made me a kinder, loving, or humble person because I know what Jesus has done for me. So Anthony, I would love for you to come up and share some of your own story of how you came to Christ. And uh, we're really glad you're with us. So come on up. Uh, good morning, forever family. Uh, my name is Anthony. Um, real quick, I just wanted to share on Pastor Todd's uh, uh, sermon right there, the woman in the well. Um, that was me, you know. I mean, basically my situation. I'll get into it a little more, but tw uh, about five months ago, I paroled after doing 23 years in prison. Um, I was incarcerated when I was 18 years old, and uh, so I've experienced um, firsthand what it what it is to be uh, an arm's distance from society. You know, people don't want to uh, um, approach you. People don't want to come around you. Um, people don't want to come into prison and help you. Um, even if you do have the money to pay them, you know, my, some attorneys, you know, 
they won't touch your case. Um, so I've experienced what it is firsthand, you know, with the woman at the well. I mean, the joy that she felt, you know, I mean, I feel it now because um, Jesus Christ, you know, he came in and rescued me too. Um, but uh, I'll go back a little bit. Um, in 1994, um, I was arrested and incarcerated for my role in a, a, a murder of a young kid and the shooting and serious injuries to two others. Um, I was 18 years old at the time. It's not an excuse, you know, I mean, I'm responsible for all my actions. Um, but I was a kid, you know, I really don't think I knew what I was doing. Uh, I was without Christ, even though I was raised in uh, a church, but I never fully embraced it. I never wanted to embrace it. I, actually, I was uh, really anti-authority growing up because of situations in the home. Um, and it led to me placing those same feelings of anti-authority on God. You know, I didn't want no part of God. Um, but I want to share a verse with you real quick, if I will, if I may. Psalms 142.7 says, Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. Um, it's a verse I cling to um, in the past uh, 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 because I draw strength, I draw courage, I draw hope from it. Um, like I said, I was arrested in, at the age of 18, and I, when I entered prison, things didn't get any better. Things got a whole lot worse when I went in. Um, I was angrier, more bitter, more defiant, more rebellious than ever. Just like the pastor was talking about the rebellion, rebelliousness, the rascal, um, I forget the, other, the renegades. <laughs> I was all those, you know, in a, in, in a bad way. Um, prison's not a place where you can show your emotions. Uh, if you show your emotions, it's viewed as, as a weak, and weakness is preyed upon. So you learn to stuff everything. And so uh, um, you build walls. I built these walls around me, you know, and uh, I was driven by fear while inside, uh, fear of people finding out the real me, fear of people not accepting the real me. And uh, mostly I was propelled by anger. You know, I was angry at my, situ my situation. I was angry at everybody else around me for my situation, even though I created it. And I was angry at myself for not being able to rise above it. Um, while in prison, like I said, things got a lot worse. Um, I ended up, uh, they shipped me to Pelican Bay State Prison, the security housing unit. That's where they send the worst of the worst, that's what they say. Um, and I couldn't believe I was there. You know, uh, I grew up, I had a two-parent two -parent home. I played sports, I excelled in sports. I had opportunities to play uh, basketball in college and things didn't work out. So I had a lot of time when I was in solitary to think, um, how did I end up here? You know, what, what led me to this place where I may never come out of? Um, when you're in the shoe, the only outside uh, area we have is about 12 by 12 and the walls are 30 feet high. So it's about as high as the ceiling right here with a small opening for, uh, uh, for sunlight. And you're lucky if you get the sun once a week, you know, for five minutes or so. But um, I sat there, you know, facing the reality of never coming out of prison, of never coming out of the shoe because of my past behavior. Um, and it was a, it's a tough feeling to, to be able to sit there and say, you know what, what am I doing? Where am I going? You know, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know Jesus. 
you know, and I really wanted nothing to do with them, but I knew I was broken and had nowhere to turn to. Um, fast forward a few years, in March of 2012, uh, a good buddy of mine in the recovery group I went to, he invited me to um, the chapel one day, you know, and I don't know what, what took me there. I was a broken individual, so I know God led me there, but I mean, I sat in the chair, I was fidgeting, I didn't want to be there, but I knew something they deep inside, that was home. You know, I had to be there, I had no choice. Um, so lo and behold, you know, that was the day, March 2012, that, that God, that God called me, you know, and uh, since that day, you know, it hasn't been an easy ride. You know, I paroled in, uh, the day after Christmas, um, so it's been about five, six months. Um, I'm working. God gave me a job. He gave me two jobs. Um, uh, he put me in a program where after this program's over with, they're going to stick me with a union, and that's a career. You know, that's for, that's for the rest of my life. You know, so um, things are moving. It's not, it's not easy. You know, it's real easy to get sidetracked and think that, I'm sitting up here, you know, able to handle it myself, you know, but it's humbling, like you're talking about, Pastor, the, the woman at the well, it's humbling, you know, now, like that verse says, you know, bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name, you know, that's why I constantly remind myself of that verse, because that's why I'm here, you know, and, uh, you know, but he's blessing me all along this, 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 this path, you know, he, I got a truck outside now, I had it for a couple of weeks, and uh, I'm learning about gas money, it's not the same thing, <laughs> um, but I know that God has a purpose and a plan for me, you know, and, but it's like you said, like contextualizing the gospel. Um, where I'm at, you know, I go to tutoring on, on, on a couple of days a week with people that, while inside, was, were my enemies, you know, we went to war, you know, so now I sit next to these guys, you know, and I have to, I'm finding common ground, you know, so I can hopefully share the gospel with them. You know, it's just beginning, so hopefully I'm going to share the gospel with these guys. But these are guys that were sworn enemies, that we would go, we'd go at it. And uh, like the woman, too, the woman. You know, I'm learning that I experience what it is like to be at arm's length. You know, so, I mean, I know there's other people out there. Sometimes I can get that, too. I'm going to put somebody at arm's length as well because of whatever I feel they're doing. You know, so, I mean, I'm learning that today, man, they hit me. The pastor was talking. I was like, man, I do that sometimes. You know, people I don't, I don't want to deal with. I don't want to spend the time with. You know, I need to take the time to do that, you know, and uh, because God has blessed me hugely, immensely, you know, that I need to be able to pass that on. Um, so in 2015, I went to the board, the board of parole hearings while in prison. Um, it's not an easy process. It's about 7% of people are found suitable for parole. And of that, like about 2% of people are actually paroled because the governor has to sign on and uh, I went to the board, it was my first shot, and they found me suitable when I paroled. You know, I know it's only the grace of God, you know, that I did parole, and that I'm still here, you know, but um, that's what I'm here to do, you know, praise his name. You know, and all along, I, I've been holding on to that verse and uh, letting it drive me, you know, but the, only recently has the second half of that verse um, finally been revealed to me, and, and it reads, Bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. And the second half reads, The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal, 
bountifully with me, you know, and now that my eyes are open and I can see, I'm seeing God's put these people around me. He's put me in a home, or, or, or the Martin home, a lot of you guys know about it. Um, our rent's paid. Um, I'm in a solid church with a solid pastor. You know, these people are like, like, like trees planted around me, you know, so I know that God has a purpose and a plan for me. And uh, I'm excited, you know, I'm excited where it's going to go, you know. And uh, um, I just thank you guys for this opportunity to come and share. Pastor, Pastor Todd, thank you. You know, that was awesome. I was at the beach earlier. You know, I put some shoes on, though, so <laughs> I, can, I can look kind of good. You with dressed it. up. You, <laughs> thank before you, you go, you have to tell one more story about your mom, your mama, and her impact in your life. All right. Um, yes, my mom. Uh, in high school, she became a born-again believer. This is in the midst of my, uh, the gang activity, the drugs, and uh, there was a peace about her. Even though I'm coming home high with weapons and doing all kinds of stupid stuff, she was at peace, and it really disturbed me. But, um, <laughs> yeah, no. she took me to church one day, you know, and I really didn't want to go, but I went with her. She made me go. And... Uh, she introduced me to the, uh, the youth pastor at the church that she was attending. And um, I didn't really, really want to speak to him. I was, I was ticked that I was there. And uh, I sat down with him and he talked to him and he told me, thank you for uh, um, obeying the commandments, one of the 10 commandments. I was like, no, I'm not obeying any of the commandments. And he said, yes, you are. You're being obedient to your mother and father by being here. You know, and so, I mean, it kind of hit me. And it stuck to me all these years that I thought about it. I thought about that pastor too, and uh, it's just something that resonated and it stuck into me. Like 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 the Bible talks about the seeds planted, you know, one one man of plant, one man of water, but God reaps the increase. And so I mean, all these years later, I mean, I, I'm I'm still in touch with that pastor again now, you know, where where now I can say I can stand next to him and I can say he's my brother in Christ, you know, and we we go to we go to some meetings and groups together, and um. It's exciting, though. I mean, her, her, my mom's faith, my mom's prayers. I was on prayer lists from all kind of churches everywhere, all over the state. I think um, to help get me through. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I mean, I, I know it's the faithfulness, and it's our part to act. You know, because she could have easily said, you know what? I mean, look what my son did. You know, yeah. I don't want nothing to do with them. But she came and she did it. You know. So I just thank you guys. Hey, let's let's pray for Anthony. Gary, come up. Whoever wants to come up, let's gather around Anthony, just a number of you. Come on up. We're going to close in prayer. We're going to have communion. We're going to just, uh, we're going to have a little music. And we're just going to take some time and just reflect on the woman at the well and this, what it means to us. And we want to pray for you as well. Just um, pray for your strength and, and uh, all the men at the Martin House and what God can do. So, Father, thank you for this amazing morning. Um, thank you for the gift that you have brought to us, a man that uh, you've touched. Uh, uh, he was at the well, and you found him. And I just know, God, you're building a new foundation under his feet, and uh, you're going to give him a voice. And it's going to be uh, just, we can sense this humility and kindness, this, you, you've taken away the roughness and the anger and the hatred, and you've put love, and you've put respect and honor and humility in its place. And this message is gonna be a message for men and women that are in prison and those coming out and the inner city and the urban community and wherever you take Anthony. We pray a blessing over his life. May he thrive 
May the message of the gospel go through his life and touch many people. We want to stand with him. We pray also for our own community that we would find the strength and the tremendous courage to be like a woman at the well who has met a man and tell our friends and to find places are the wells that you've given to us, the Samarias that you've given to us. Now call us, Father, to your table, Jesus. We recognize your sacrifice for us on our behalf. Your blood, your body were shed for us so that we might have new life. So we come to the table now if we desire to celebrate that new life. In Jesus' name.